You are listening to an ODI live event podcast. You can find out more about events and research by the Overseas Development Institute by visiting our website, odi.org. Welcome, everybody. My name is Wendy Fenton, and I'm the coordinator of the Humanitarian Practice Network here at ODI. And I'd like to welcome our panelists, all of you in the room, and the online audience to today's event. And this is focusing on the Rohingya crisis, and we're looking at voices from the field. Um, we're, this also features the latest edition of the Humanitarian Exchange, which is number 73, which we've entitled Rohingya Refugees in Bangladesh, the Humanitarian Response. And I think you've all got copies on your chairs, so feel free to take those with you. Um, before we start, I just ask that you could put your phones on silent, please. You know, you can continue to, to tweet and other things, but use the hashtag Rohingya crisis. Um, and over the past year, more than 700,000 people have fled to Bangladesh to escape violence and persecution in Rakhine State in Myanmar. And the Rohingyas, you know, have suffered persecution for decades, but it's really only this most recent mass exodus which has attracted sort of sustained international attention. Um, the government of Bangladesh doesn't officially recognize the Rohingyas refugees. They have limited rights and freedoms in country, and they're housed in overcrowded camps, uh, lacking adequate assistance and protection in many cases. And resources are increasingly stretched because people have continued to come, and they've really turned Cox's Bazaar into the biggest refugee settlement in the world. Uh, the recent monsoon and cyclone rains have also added to the misery by destroying or damaging uh, infrastructure and services. And operational organizations in Cox's Bazaar, and I think a number of you here today and online are working for many of those, um, have faced significant challenges in responding to the crisis. Um, many of these stem from poor coordination arrangements, um, difficult planning, uh, local organizations in particular, I think, have found it difficult to operate in this environment, and I think many feel that their contributions have been undervalued and, and unappreciated. And I'm sure not deliberately so in many cases. Some of this is a function of the uh, way the arrangements have been set up. So some of the questions that we want to explore today um, include what are the ongoing challenges in engaging with and supporting the Rohingya refugees? How can humanitarian agencies be more effective in responding to their needs in Cox's Bazaar? And, and importantly, what can we learn from past Rohingya refugee responses? So I'd like to, um, we're, I mean, we're very lucky today because we've got an interesting and distinguished panel with us, and I'd like to introduce them now. So I'll start with Mark Bowden, who's joining us by telephone link from Vienna. Hello, Mark. Hi, Wendy. Mark, so, uh, it's good to have you with us today, and thank you for taking the trouble. He's actually on holiday, I'll have you know, and he's uh, agreed to join us even so. So Mark's a senior advisor with the Center for Humanitarian Dialogue, and he's a senior research associate with the Humanitarian Policy Group here at ODI. He also wrote the lead article for the edition. Um, Mark previously served from 2011 to 2017 in Afghanistan as the UN Deputy Special Representative of the Secretary General, the Resident Coordinator, the Humanitarian Coordinator, and UNDP Re Resident Representative. 
and he was also the UN representative, resident and representative uh, resident, sorry, there are so many acronyms here, and I, I usually just say the acronym, but I'm having to read them out now, uh, resident rep for Somalia from 2008 to 2011, and the, um, the UNMIS, the Mission in Sudan, Director of Civil Affairs before that. Mark's also worked uh, as the Chief of Policy Development and Studies at UNOCHA, and earlier in his, in his career, when I first met him, he worked for Save the Children Fund as the head of the regional office for East Africa, as the Africa director, and finally country director in Bangladesh. And was it that in 1978, Mark, that you were in Bangladesh? Uh, it was indeed, yes, 78, okay. 79. Right, okay. Yeah. Well, thank you very much and welcome, Mark. And then on my left, we've got Ake Bore, is that correct? correct. <laughs> Who is, uh, an operation, is an operations manager of Medicine Sans Frontieres in Amsterdam and responsible for MSF programs in Afghanistan, Pakistan, Bangladesh, and South Sudan. That's an interesting region, actually. <laughs> um, and over the last 14 years, she's worked with MSF in India, Bangladesh, Papua New Guinea, Chad, and the Central African Republic, managing a broad range of medical operations from large-scale emergency responses to vertical medical programs such as sexual and gender-based violence, HIV, tuberculosis, hepatitis C, etc. And she holds a master's degree in social and political anthropology, specializing in social relations in Bhutan. Um, we're also very pleased to have with us today on my right, Nurul Islam, who is a well-known human rights lawyer and activist. Nurul was born in North Arakan, Rakhine State, and he's currently the chairman of the Arakan Rohingya National Organization, the ARNO, which is a peaceful political movement of the Rohingya people. And he is also the coordinator for policy affairs at the Free Rohingya Coalition, or the FRC. Um, Nurul worked as a consultant on Arakan affairs in the Euro-Burma office in Brussels until 2010. So welcome, Nurul. And then uh, last, but certainly not least, on my far left, is Caroline Nursey. Uh, Caroline joined the BBC Media Action as the Executive Director in March 20, uh, 2009. She's on the board of CDAC, uh, which is Communicating with Disaster-Affected Communities. And she's also the current chair of BOND. And Caroline's career includes nearly 10 years at Oxfam GB as a regional director international director and country director, during which time she worked on a number of humanitarian emergencies, uh, particularly the, Dar the Darfur crisis. So now, um, after, now the, following the introductions, what we're going to do is have a bit of a discussion with our panel, and then we're going to open up the floor for you to ask questions and to have a discussion with you both in the room and online. So I'd like to start with Mark. Um, and Mark, I, as we know, the government of Bangladesh, particularly with the upcoming election, is keen to show that they're treating the Rohingya influx as a temporary crisis. And I mean, how has the political context in Bangladesh further complicated the operational challenges involved in the response? I mean, especially with regard to refugee rights, access, and coordination and registration. Well, let me start by saying that uh, I think it, it, it's been fairly fundamental in affecting all uh, those areas. Uh, you have to distinguish, I think, between the uh, the national politics and the local politics. 
in, in the context, um, bearing in mind that uh, it's assumed that Cox's Bazaar uh, is not an area where there's been uh, so much support for the current government's party, the Awami League, but is more BNP-based. So there's a complication in terms of the overall politics of Bangladesh uh, in, in the region. Uh, but the, the main, uh, uh, and I think that uh, uh, has had an effect on the, the overall response of the, the government of Bangladesh and the concern they show towards the issue. But uh, more specifically, uh, right from the beginning, the fact that, uh, they were, that the government of Bangladesh was concerned about recognizing the refugee rights of the population uh, affected the coordination structures that were put in place. Uh, originally, the uh, IOM uh, was asked to take on coordination. And then a very strange, well, to my mind, a rather strange tripartite coordination structure that's a bit unwieldy uh, has developed out of this, uh, all in a sense because of the, the concern about uh, recognizing the refugee status of the population. Uh, uh, and uh, uh, with the current coordination structure, I think what, what uh, has resulted from that uh, is uh, a, a mixture of uh, treating this as a refugee emergency with uh, a UNHCR having to play a role, uh, but also we've ended up without a humanitarian coordinator uh, being appointed as, uh, as would normally be the case in a level three of a large-scale emergency. So uh, these factors, to my mind, mean that you don't necessarily get all the tools uh, that you should have in coordination, including things like pooled funds uh, that actually would have helped to address some of the uh, concerns that have been raised about uh, better local engagement and direct support for, for, for local organizations. So that's been one area on coordination. The second area uh, in terms of uh, the p politics is uh, at the local level where people have been, uh, the Rohingya coming in, have been very constrained in their movements and access to the camps has also been uh, similarly constrained for, for agencies, certainly at, at the beginning. And of course, there is the remaining underlying threat of, of movement of a proportion of this population uh, out of the Cox's Bazaar area onto uh, uh, a temporary and artificial island. Uh, uh, and then I think the final way, in which I think the, the issue of refugee uh, status and the politics uh, have uh, affected things are, are again at the local level, where I think the Rohingya, the local Rohingya community who, uh, uh, who exist uh, have felt increasingly uh, at threat and, and uh, a fear potential political violence uh, that, that may result from uh, local antipathies uh, and uh, that, that have arisen uh, from the, the local population in, in, in Cox's Bazaar. I mean, I think there are, there are a number of other ways as well, but I think that would summarize my, my concerns. Thank you, Mark. Um, I mean, you also note in your article that marginalization, exploitation of the Rohingya and the, the likelihood of increasing hostility uh, towards them um, requires new approaches to protection and a, a protection framework that extends beyond the camps. What approaches do you think would work and, and what would be the key elements of an effective protection framework from your perspective? 
Well, uh, what I was trying to draw attention to was the fact that there is both a a local Rohingya population living in uh, communities uh, both in Cox's Bazaar and in the Chittagong Hill Tract. Uh, uh, and uh, that protection needs to be extended to them as well as to the Rohingya population uh, in the camp. Uh, when I visited earlier, the uh, local Rohingya, uh, the, the longer established Rohingya groups in the local communities were really quite uh, scared of what the future held for them. So uh, by looking at a broader protection mechanism, I think it's looking at, at, at also broader Rohingya, the broader Rohingya community. Uh, the second uh, uh, area of concern is that uh, there has been quite a lot of uh, involvement of uh, local criminal elements, not Rohingya criminal elements, but local criminal elements in, in terms of trafficking, uh, and, of course, uh, drug running has been prevalent in the area. So I think that also requires uh, a, an approach to protection that takes you outside uh, of the camp environment and that looks at the Rohingya in the, in the broader uh, community and to provide the sort of protection and support uh, that they need from this form of exploitation. And the final area that uh, I, I feel is important uh, is there needs to be a far stronger uh, advocacy uh, and communications program uh, with, uh, within the, the local community of, of, of Cox's Bazaar. Uh, uh, because uh, uh, that, that does address some of the concerns of the local uh, local communities about the potential increases in uh, or, or loss of money that some of the poorer laborers feel they uh, they have uh, and the economic uh, disadvantages that are felt by the poorer elements of the community. Well, it's clear that the, the richer elements of the community in Coxon's Bazaar have done very well out of the situation. But part of protection, I think, is also far better and stronger communication uh, pro program with local journalists uh, and the local community. Okay, thank you for that. And I'll, I will, I wonder, um, Caroline, do you, do you have any comments on that last point about the communication? With journalists and the others. Well, yes. No, no, no. I mean, I'd agree with Mark. I think, um, I think that... I, th I think that there are, I mean, we as Media Action have been trying to do some work with local broadcasters. I initially, what we were doing, or well, still, still trying to do, is to help them to work out how to get the information into the camps that the camps need. So the focus was on communication with, with um, disaster-affected communities, rather than um, perhaps these more political issues behind it. Mm -hmm. But I do totally agree that, um, that radio and press um, do need to be covering that and it's actually a challenge to us I think how can we do mm. more to help them to develop the skills to do that and to do it in a way that isn't just going to fuel hatred. Mm. Is this something that Internews is focusing on? They are doing work on yeah. it which I, which I think is is important mm. yeah mm. yeah. Mm. Thank you. Um, Mark I've got one last question for you before we we move on. Um, uh, in his article, Jeff Crisp, who's actually in the audience with us today, Jeff, sitting here, um, he reflects on the premature, involuntary, and unsafe return of large numbers of Rohingya refugees to Myanmar in the 1970s and 1990s. 
And as we, as we just established, you were with Save the Children in Bangladesh in the late 70s, I think in 78 as a country director. And I just wondered, based on that experience, um, what do you think we can learn from past Rohingya refugee responses? And, and are we at risk of seeing this happen again? Are we just repeating, repeating the same patterns again? Well, I, I think some things have uh, improved as we've got, uh, I would say, slightly better at uh, managing relief operations because I think one of the problems in 1978-79 uh, was the quality uh, of relief operations. There was a cholera epidemic. There was a very high death rate uh, in Cox's uh, Bazaar uh, at, at the time. And I uh, and, and so far, uh, and uh, as I mentioned in my article as well, I think people do deserve credit for uh, uh, avo uh, averting the crisis within the crisis, at least in the early stages, because uh, what I also omitted to say was that we have put uh, the Rohingya in a particularly high-risk and very vulnerable environment with high levels of overcrowding, and I don't think we've learned from, from that. And that's uh, one of the issues, I think, will continue to need to be uh, uh, addressed. I mean, the second area, which I think Jeff uh, highlights very well in his article, uh, is this whole issue of trying to push uh, the Rohingya back uh, when conditions are not, are not uh, appropriate or safe. Uh, uh, and uh, at the moment, it, it does appear that uh, people are uh, at least recognizing the importance of uh, both, both the voluntary, safe, and dignified nature of return, but there will be constant pressure, I, I think, to uh, to move back at least a portion of the population uh, as soon as possible, and that's something that I think needs to be addressed at the uh, uh, both the political level uh, and will be a challenge for for coordination. Thank you very much. Um, I'd like to turn now to Narul, if that's okay, um, Narul. The issue of statelessness um, is one of the key elements in the, in the decades-long persecution of the Rohingya in Myanmar. Um, and those who leave Myanmar risk not being recognized as re refugees, as we've, as we've already said, as is the case in Bangladesh, and, and not being given the protections as a result that they're entitled to. Um, in Amal de Chikra's article, uh, he states that the problem lies in the lack of political will among the main actors to actually protect the Rohingya and to adequately address the root causes of statelessness. And the failure of the UN and INGOs to put human rights first and bring the perpetrators to justice. Um, do you agree with that? And if so, what do you think can be done about it? Yes, I, I agree with, uh, with Amal. The, in fact, this is the issue of uh, Statelessness is the main elements of uh, Rwanda persecution, one of the main elements. And the, here I want to stress that we are not, uh, we means the Rohingya, peoples are not illegal immigrants or something that the Bamiskom is going to allege. We are very much indigenous to Arakan. Even it has been created, this statelessness has been created in order to expel, to exterminate the Rohingya from their homeland. 
particularly this is a 1982 citizenship law, which has entrenched the Rohingya statelessness, is denying the Rohingyas, I mean, the histories and denying their identity as a Rohingya. This, the, the Bambi's authorities say that there is no Rohingya and these are the Bengalis. This is not the fact. With this, they are justifying making this a, is a, in utter disregard of the international law, they make it a justification to impose suffocating restrictions and humanitarian restrictions on the Rohingya people. Actually, these Rohingyas are, in fact, this is not, a, this is a case of intolerance. They are not tolerators in the country <coughs> on the basis of their religion, ethnicity, and a Southeast Asian appearance in contrast to Southeast Asians of dominant Bama people. In by all legal standard, and the, they are very much citizens of the country. However, there is a one thing, the attitudes of the, the Bamis authorities must be changed towards Rohingya. For if in the case of a command Muslim, there's also Muslim groups in Arakan, they are recognized as an ethnic group in Burma. Yet, from right from the 2012 violent, these people are still confined to, I mean, the concentration camps in 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 Sitwe and north, and, I mean, the southern sit, uh, towns of Arakan. So this is a, a in fact, uh, as to the uh, uh, Rohingya situation, there are, you know, these these refugees who are in Bangladesh, they are these genocide survivors. Across, they should be called by the uh, by by the proper name. This is a, according to 1951 Refugee Convention. That is refugee, and the uh, still although the Bangladesh government is now using the word the term that uh, they are forcibly displaced. I mean, Burmese national. The word Burmese national is there. They mention, and at the same time, until now, they don't withheld any uh, the facilities uh, on the Rohingya people. Oh. So and. Uh, among the uh, actors, I mean, the, this is mainly one is the Burmese military, Burmese government, and the uh, Buddhist Rakhine, and the international community. This is the Burmese government, even the, uh, the military, they are determined to exterminate the Rohingya people to the last man because this is me online himself said in general, these people, we have to they continue the unfinished job right from the 1942. That means they want to finish the Rohingya people totally from the Rohingya Arkan. And uh, the, gov the government of Aung San Suu Kyi is uh, very much, uh, uh, we say that she's, uh, and uh, herself and her government is uh, complicit in the genocide of the Rohingya in the sense that she is now protecting the, I mean, the military people and they're shielding the military activities and defending the brutalities of the military people. And then we have the Rakhine people with whom we are living together. We are living same, uh, live together, and still we are living. And we have to live until doomsday. There is no problem. There no, no, I mean the uh, reason to have a problem to carry a problem between our two sister communities. Yet, due to the I mean, instigations of the third party, the, there is an antagonism. This is the Rakhine people they become the instrument in our persecution. 
even the they think that they used to say that they want to have a totalitarian domination of Arakan. Rohingya or Muslim had nothing to do in in, Bar, in Arakan, and the 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 Rakhine and the Buddhism are synonymous. This is their point. So, well, sorry to interrupt. I just wondered, do you think there's anything that can be done by yeah. the inter governments or the international community um, yeah, to address these issues? The, the, to address, this is the main thing, is that to address the Rohingya, I mean the refugee I mean, uh, problem in particular, and the Rohingya, I mean the crisis, is that is the, the, we should, what we should do, in my view, so the one million Rohingyas are now today in, in Bangladesh. The refugee camp, they're living in the very uh, overcrowded areas in a, a small geographical unit, area. Even there are some social problems okay. now going, such that local people are now voicing that this refugee cannot uh, stay longer. Because uh, they also feel that some, they feel outnumbered by the refugees. At the same time, there is an environmental I mean, the, uh, problem. And the, uh, they also you see, they feel that they need to, to carry an ID card now to, to move from place to place local yeah. people. So they are not happy with this. So in the same time, a, a lots of I mean, the problems in the refugee camps, like a humanitarian crisis, uh, I mean, the uh, education, and the healthcare, <coughs> and the, uh, particularly the uh, vulnerable sections of people like the women and children. There's a risk of uh, abduction um, by the human traffickers. And the the most, this is a here, the vital, I mean, the, this is a vital to increase the support of the support for the Rohingya refugees. But humanitarian aids cannot, is a, simply as a symbolic, it's a, I could address the symbolic, I mean, this is a, uh, first of all, this is a, uh, I mean, this is a humanitarian aid to the refugee living in the camp, uh, it should ensure the living conditions of the Rohingyas people so they should be able to live in, in dignity. But we have to be mindful that the humanitarian can only address the symptoms of the challenges affecting the Rohingya people. It will never address the root cause, uh, which is the systematic violence and persecution and the marginalization that forced them to leave the, their homeland. The foremost priority for my people is to return home, to return to Arakan, to, to, to Burma, the country we love much. To Arakan, the, 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 the place with which we have a, a psychological, I mean, the spiritual attachment with this. But we cannot return to our homeland. How? Because when there is a still, I mean, the violence and the, and the, and the, uh, and, uh, atrocity crimes are going, in fact, the genocide is still going in Myanmar. The military's government has no intention. I think the military and the government as well has no intentions of creating condition for sustainable, I mean, the returns of the refugee. They already have, because they already have achieved their goal. That is eliminating the Rohingya people. Eliminating Rohingya mm. people. Mm. And at the same time, land is the life of the people. Now they have uh, all land abandoned by the Rohingya refugees and the, and the, and the banned land. All has been taken over by the Burmese government and uh, 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 declared their state ownership. And 
as the Amal had mentioned one point, that is not only psychological, I mean, the uh, ideological matter to expel the, I mean, the Rohingya people, also economic reason there. That means, so this is a one thing, the, they now, the uh, plans are now underway to establish, to set up so-called, I mean, the, uh, 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 what's called, so-called so, so special economic zone. Right, yeah. Uh, that is in, 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 in northern, in Mongdo Township. Yes. At the same time, there are large-scale schemes in now going to set up, I mean, the further, I mean, uh, increasing uh, Buddhist settlements on the Rohingya in, in, in yes, all over the yeah. northern, northern Arkan. Well, can I um, interrupt you just for a minute? I'm sorry, um, because it's very interesting, but I think to, to give some yeah. of our other yeah. panelists an opportunity, and then I'll come back to you if yeah, that's okay. all right, because we're going to continue the discussion. Yeah. So thank you very much for that. Um, I wanted to, okay, um, go down to the ground again and look at the health situation. Um, we know that MSF has been providing health care to Rohingya communities in Myanmar and Bangladesh for uh, more than 30 years. And was it 2009, I think, that you established a presence in Cox's Bazaar and started providing health care there? Uh, it was much earlier than that. It was that. much earlier yes, than that. But, uh, okay. the, the last uh, move in Kutupulong was since 2009. Yes, yes. right. Yeah. And I, I mean, given that you had a presence there, what were the challenges that you faced with this huge influx um, of over 700 people in a period of a few months? Um, yeah, it, it, the scale of things was, of course, uh, so big that for anyone to respond to that and all the NGOs had the same struggles was, uh, was very, very complex. When we were there, we were there with uh, just one clinic for about 50 beds. And uh, within a very short amount of time, we, we scaled up to about 400 beds, mm -hmm. uh, to four hospitals, uh, five primary healthcare centers, um, eight health posts, and off and on more where needed. Um, and uh, also the complexity of the health needs became uh, bigger, of course, because of the, the large arrivals. Uh, anything from seeing gunshot wounds to burns, uh, bruises, mental health. Uh, we had already a mental health care program, but we scaled that up massively as well. Mm. And so far we've seen over um, 16,000 individual uh, consultations within mental health and uh, 18,000 uh, group consultations. So, and that's only still a fraction of probably what's needed. Um, we set up a large um, outbreak facility. So uh, knowing that the primary health care situation in Rakhine uh, for the Rohingya had been uh, not very present, uh, knowing that outbreaks could happen in a big camp like that, uh, and that was of course the case, so we all know that diphtheria outbreak uh, that happened and it was a massive challenge to respond to as well, uh, but also measles, jaundice, uh, many other uh, epidemics that, uh, that, that did happen and we're still responding to as we speak. Mm. And you were one of the few um, actors on the ground at the, at the time? At the time, yes. I think there were maybe four international NGOs, about four of us left, and mm. there were still uh, local NGOs responding as well, but health actors, uh, we were one of the only ones. Yeah. Mm. And you uh, mentioned uh, just now diphtheria, which was a particular problem, wasn't it? It was. And, and why was that such a problem in particular? Um, as one of our doctors said, it's, it's a disease of the past. Um, it, there hadn't been a big outbreak for over 50 years. And uh, we also didn't have the knowledge anymore so much in our teams to respond actually to diphtheria. 
Besides the fact that the antitoxin was uh, hardly available, there were only about 5,000 vials left uh, in, in the world. Um, there were a few other small outbreaks going on. Um, in Yemen, there's another outbreak uh, at the moment. Um, but just the knowledge of, of the outbreak, of treating it, uh, which antibiotics to give, uh, was, was we had to relearn everything. Um, and again, it showed that uh, the population had not been vaccinated because it is a disease that nowadays, with simple vaccination, doesn't need to happen anymore. Um, and uh, it wasn't only children that we, we saw, we saw also adults coming in with diphtheria, which shows that there is a whole generation not having been vaccinated uh, for, for a very long time. Um, so yeah, we had to scale up that as well. While we were also responding to measles, scaling up the regular healthcare, um, learning, talking to doctors who had responded 50 years ago to the epidemic here at the London School of, uh, of um, uh, Tropical Medicine. So yeah, it was a lot of searching. Um, I think it went well, the scale up did happen. Um, we treated over 6,000 cases, um, but we couldn't save everybody, that's, that's for sure. Yeah. And I, I suppose in a, a case like this, I mean, one of the big lessons seems to be that um, sort of understanding what the health conditions are in the country of origin of a displaced population is important in terms of what access they have to health care and what the level of that health care is. Would that be a lesson maybe that could be learned from this? Sure, and, and, and we were present in, in Myanmar and for many years we, we tried to provide healthcare uh, there. So we had some knowledge about it. Uh, mm. We did know mm. that people were not vaccinated, um, but I, I actually also, we didn't expect at that time, we expected measles, uh, cholera, mm -hmm. we were prepared for, mm -hmm. but I think even diphtheria, we, we didn't see it coming even in the other crisis that we work. It is very rare, it's very rare that you still see uh, the cases and that this outbreak happened, but it is, it is a lesson learned to look where they come from and, and, and what, uh, what the healthcare mm. is that they've received over a long amount of time. Mm. Yeah. And did you say that it's appearing in Yemen? as well. Yeah, diphtheria has also appeared in Yemen. Mm -hmm. There's still an outbreak going on there as well. Yeah. So maybe yeah. will some of the lessons from your experience be... Yes. We're yes. <laughs> treating it there well, as well. Well, that's encouraging, so. isn't yeah. it? Yeah. yeah. Uh, I guess, too, um, we were curious to know, um, I mean, what level of healthcare is actually available to the Rohingya in the camps? Um, you know, are people able to access secondary healthcare, mental healthcare support, um, treatment for chronic conditions and things like cancer? Or is it really very basic care that they're able um, to get? Well, I, I, my impression was I was just there a few weeks ago, and I think primary health care, um, a lot of actors have come in, they are providing, there are a lot of health posts, primary health care centers. Um, I had the impression that that was, I mean, with all the limitations it has, relatively uh, covered. Um, I think secondary health care, there are still many gaps, specialized health care, maternal and child health care. Um, mental health care indeed there are services available uh, from also different different NGOs um, uh, the Ministry of Health has their services in the in the established uh, hospitals however um, specifically on, on, on secondary health care I think there is there's a room for a lot more and there's not always enough beds available for patients that come in uh, referrals to other facilities uh, is difficult so there's there's still a lot of work to do on, on that front and also within primary health care, the vaccination that needs to continue because there are still new arrivals um, uh, going on as we speak. Um, so, uh, and keeping up and doing the outreach and making sure that this massive, massive camp is covered on, on all these aspects, um, there's, there's a massive amount of work to be done.
Yeah. And so the, the Ministry of Health is, uh, is coordinating that assistance, or is it done through the intersector coordination group, or they're part of that? They're part of that. So we, we do yeah. coordinate with the Ministry of Health as well as the, the intersection mm -hmm. uh, um, mm -hmm. coordination mm -hmm. group. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. It's a hard one to say, intersector yeah. coordination I, group. Or <laughs> what's the acronym? Well. ISCG? Or we, we just got to grips with the sort yeah. of standard yeah. ones. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay, thank you very much. Um, Caroline. Um, I mean, the, I want to, to move on to uh, communications and accountability, but um, I guess the, the environment in which the response to the, the refugee crisis is being carried out is, has posed a range of challenges mm -hmm. for operational agencies trying to communicate and engage with affected people. And I wondered if you could sort of outline what some of those challenges are and how agencies have tried to work together to overcome them. Yeah. I, th I think there are some very specific challenges in, in this context, and I'll, I'll, I'll say something about that in a minute. I just wanted to say overall that I think actually it's been a pretty positive picture in terms of the acceptance that um, communication and engagement with communities matters. And some of that presumably comes out of the grand bargain and the recognition there that there was need for a participation revolution and that any work that we do has to be rooted in the needs, views, priorities, solutions of the people who we're trying to serve. Um, so we have found a much more fertile environment for communication with disaster-affected communities or, or what's increasingly being called communication, community engagement and accountability, CCEA, so there's a nice new acronym for everybody, um, that, that actually that it is being recognised in a way I've never seen happen before in a humanitarian response. I visited towards the end of November last year, so fairly early in the crisis, and finding right from the top and through there was that there was people were open to this. There's been donor pressure to do that, although, um, you know, as Mark was saying, there have also been lots of problems with the way the overall matters have been set up. So funding for communication and, and engagement, along with everything else, has been very short-term, which perhaps matters more for... Well, it matters for everything, but does matter very much for communication. Um, and... The, the, and it, I think that's part of the reason why some of the local NGOs have been squeezed out, which really matters because their voices around something like communication and community engagement are absolutely essential because they know more about it and what it's like. There have been a number of things that have helped to make it work. Um, preparedness work over the last few years. DFID funded the CDAC network to do some disaster preparedness work, um, which Media Action led, but it meant that actors across the country, communication specialists and mainstream NGOs of different sizes and the government, had the chance to think through what this area, what this means and, and how to do it when a crisis hits, and that's made a big difference. Um, the particular challenges, I mean, obviously language, and it's it's a very interesting one because the Rohingya language is is not is not the same as the Bangla language. It's certainly very very different from Burmese. Um, fortunately, the Chittagonia, the language spoken in in the Chittagong Hills, is similar. And I think you know, most of us agencies early on thought, great, you know, our Chitta we can get in Chittagong 
colleagues and they'll understand each other. Translators Without Borders have done some very interesting work to analyse the differences and similarities between the languages. And they say there is 70% overlap between Chittagong language and Rohingya, which sounds good, but then actually some of that 30%, it's really important vocabulary and can lead to profound... Um, confusion if, if the wrong word is, is used. And then you've got added complications that actually even the language spoken by the Rohingya people who've been there for a couple of decades and those who've just arrived has diverged. So the local, so the people who've been in Bangladesh, various um, Burmese, sorry, various Bangla words have come into the language whereas those who are still in, in Myanmar have taken on certain Burmese words or certainly Rakhine words and that that makes some of the communication even between uh, Rohingya who have been there for a long time and the recently arrived tricky. Um, we've been trying to do various work on that as, as the common services, the communication agencies working together. Translation without borders have been very helpful in in trying to, you know, in being clear what the key words are that can be understood in the various situations. And that's all available on a common platform, so any agency can use it. And producing um, non-branded materials on health or whatever it may be, which which are have the correct translation so that anybody can pull them down, then can then brand them as they want to and use them. Um, and they've translators have also trained interpreters um, and got people working together on that. Then, of course, there are the cultural barriers, and those particularly affect women. So you've got a lot of women who are confined to the house, traditionally. It's therefore very difficult to engage with them, and more difficult than in every situation to avoid getting a very um, tilted view of what's going on by listening to male voices more than women. Um, illiteracy. The um, survey which Internews did early on suggested that 73% of the population who were arriving were illiterate. And of course the Rohingya language is not a written language and even things like the counting system are distinctly different from that used in, in um, Bangladesh. It's actually very interesting. It's on a, I understand it's on a 20 base rather than a 10 base, you know, so rather than counting 1 to 10 and sort of starting again, as we do, it's 1 to 20 and then starting again. So so even straightforward translation of the numbers is, is quite tricky. And that's meant that a lot of the things we tend to think of using to communicate really don't work. There's no point putting up a poster if um, four-fifths of those around are not going to be able to read it. Um, even if you try to put a sign up, it isn't necessarily understood. So the sign to show, show that somewhere's dangerous, what tends to be used around the world is a, is a circle with a, cross, with a line through it to show don't go in, this area is dangerous. We found that that doesn't mean anything for people. But actually a hand uh, put up as a sort of stop sign hand painted red does work. So again, that sort of detailed research that can then be shared across the humanitarian community makes a real difference. But it's quite subtle because, okay, the red hand works, but if you put up a white hand, that actually means it's clean and it's all fine. So you've got 
very much got to get it right um, or it can have the opposite effect from what's needed. Colours are interesting and have proved very useful because if, if you get a document and you don't understand it, the only way you're going to know anything about it is what colour is the document. So you know that a red document is important because that's your papers. If the um, authorities then change it and some key paper that used to be red is now blue, you don't know that you should be keeping the blue one because you always kept the red one. So that sort of thing becomes critically important where you've got a community where very few people can read. Um, that's interesting with drugs as well, apparently, because people will get used to a particular drug being a certain colour. They know that's OK. So uh, I'm not sure if I'm getting this right. I think the birth control tablets were red. Now, if you then do any other tablet that's red, people think that they're birth control tablets and they may not want to take them. So all that kind of thing, which always matters, becomes becomes more important. Um, they're not the, the Rohingya are not allowed properly to be using local SIMs in Bangladesh. Now that means that setting up a hotline where you can phone in and report something that's not being done right, it doesn't work. I mean, some people do have phones, but they're not officially allowed to have them. So you've got to find some other way of getting the feedback loop to work. We have, we've actually, we've found that one of the things that does work is that most community workers do have phones that work. So they will download materials, health materials or whatever it may be, and then use them as they're going around. And the, the survey that was done um, recently, actually can't remember whether it was the uh, real-time evaluation or the, or the uh, evaluation of the... Um, common service, found that a lot of people were getting their information from other people's mobile phones. And that's not just accidental, mm. it's because agencies have worked together to set out to get materials onto these phones where people can then let others listen or look. Um, there's also low ownership of radios. So, you know, we as an organisation, Media Action, we tend to use radios, but it's not terribly useful there because there isn't that much ownership and there isn't a tradition of listening to radio. So even if you do radio distributions, actually people aren't going to necessarily listen. What we have found works is getting some of that material in audio form distributed to the information hubs and then people will go in and listen to the information hub, listen to things there. There are quite a lot of information hubs across the camps and some of the early surveys found that those weren't really working because people didn't know what they were. Partly, if, if they've got information hub written up on them, how, even if you get the language right, if you can't read, people don't know what they are. But it seems now the latest feedback is suggesting that people do know what they are and are going there and are using them to find things out but also to give feedback and are mostly fairly satisfied with the responses they're getting to the feedback. So I think those are becoming increasingly important in the camps and, and probably relatively more important in this response than in another one where, where phones might work. Mm -hmm. No, that's very interesting. I mean, uh, Ground Truth Solutions, Nick Van Prague and uh, Kai Hopkins also wrote an article for the exchange and in their article, they highlight that the systematic ongoing collection 
um, and use of feedback from affected people or refugees across the camps is missing from the response. And I just wondered if you agreed with that based on your experience. And if you do, how are operational agencies, you know, again, attempting to address this issue? I mean, how do we move from collecting feedback to ensuring that affected people really have a voice in the decisions that affect them? I think I partially agree. Um, and, and maybe that's because we, we, we've been, we're one of the agencies trying to do something about it because we've set, we, we run this thing called, funded by DFID with some of the other communication agencies, the common service, which not only is designed to get shared materials out there that people can use it, but is also meant to get, um, get information back from the various agencies where they've been getting feedback from communities. It gets it back, it anonymizes it, it gets it out there for others to use. Um, so we are finding that that there are a lot of agencies are trying to get feedback from communities. S some aren't, but a lot are, and some are doing it reasonably well. There is, and, and some are then willing to share it. There is a reluctance sometimes to share, perhaps because people are worried that their agency will appear badly in it if if there's lots of criticism actually they won't because the information that's that's then reused it doesn't say what agency is it is and who said it but i think some are afraid of that um there's been some concern about data protection particularly i mean in this country we're all now completely paranoid about gdpr and actually again it doesn't it isn't an issue because all the information is anonymized. You can't get any personal data from it. But I think those have been barriers. But I, I think gradually we're overcoming them. What 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 is then done through the common service, amongst other things, is to pr produce a fortnightly, quite short um, set of information which which is available on, online called what matters and it's usually got in it uh, something about communication in one way or other so this this one i've picked up here has got colors in the camps and how you communicate about them but it's also got um some some feedback usually on a particular area um so one of them here has got people feeding back that there's a real problem that the NGOs all start work at the same time that children are trying to get to school and so the traffic jams are really bad and children can't get to school. Well that's come from people talking to communities, it's then getting fed back and what practitioners have said they like about the what matters is that as well as um, consolidating some of the information and drawing conclusions, there are also quotes from individuals which helps us I think to understand so it's it's quite simply written because it's aiming for it's aimed at aid workers who who speak all sorts of different languages and it's in English um, and and this seems to be working quite well what we don't know is actually the numbers who are using it because people download it but the uh, qualitative feedback is that people are finding that valuable so I mean I, you know I, th I think I think ground truth is absolutely right that the information is not being collected as systematically as it might be, and probably even more that it's still not being shared. But I think mechanisms are in place that will allow it to happen if agencies can be 
encouraged to do it. Mm. Mm. You know, in the end, it's that old thing of how do you get, how do any of us take account of what we're being told? I mean, if how do we learn? And I think in a in a humanitarian situation, everybody is so busy. It's very difficult to get people at the right points in the organisation to look at the feedback that's coming and then adapt accordingly. Mm, mm. Um, that's the that's the fundamental challenge. Mm, mm. Thank you for that. Um, I'd like to move on uh, to our question and answer session with uh, with all of you. But Nural, I wondered if I could ask you just a quick question before we we do that. Um, I mean, we've talked to, you've been hearing a lot of talk about how people are affected and from other people's perspectives and what the humanitarian response consists of, what some of the challenges have been. Um, but what's the feedback that you're getting from people on the ground, Rohingya people on the ground in Bangladesh, your other contacts? What do they, how do they think humanitarian responders are doing? Um, you know, what, what we need to do or change to better support them? Uh, actually, this uh, humanitarian crisis is uh, immeasurably great, both in refugee camps and inside a kind state as well. But the, uh, the, as to the solution, the only solution is the Rohingya people, the refugee, should be able to go back to their homeland in, in dignity and, uh, in, and uh, with full protection. Sure. So this is the only solution that we call it the protected return to our protected homeland. So for this, we are appealing the international community, calling on the international community and the UK government to do. I here I want to give the six. I mean the point here to mention. The one is it needs to increase pressure on Myanmar mm -hmm. and its utmost and the foremost ally, the China. This is very important. The second thing is support credible accountability efforts. Mm -hmm. This is to ensure the victims see the justice, uh, I mean, the SAR, and cycle of violence is not repeated. And at the same time, it includes the referring the situation to uh, in Myanmar to the ICC, International Criminal Court. Mm -hmm. A strengthened targeted, I mean, the I mean, sanction against the military people, Temador. And it is, uh, it should be the beyond, I mean, the symbolic target, I mean, some really symbolic sanction. Mm -hmm. And uh, particularly, it should target the in military interest. Uh, the, and the trade preference must be linked to condition on human rights. And it must, it needs to see the Rohingya, I mean, the uh, tangible progress uh, in, the, in the situation of the Rohingya people. The other thing they vocally support the Rohingya people's rights to be recognized as one of the ethnic nationalities of Burma. Mm -hmm. At the same time, to restore their full citizenship consistent with the other ethnic nationalities of the countries. And they support efforts to establish a stabilization force. Because the, this is one thing you have to understand that the cost of inaction is more than the cost of action. Mm -hmm. Because of how long these refugees will be fed by the international community here? It's a, at the same time, local problem here. At the same time, how long Bangladesh will be going to uh, look after them? This is the major problem, international community. How long this is near the guarantee? So the better is these people should be better, I mean, look after inside their homeland. 
So for this, we need establish stabilization forces. Mm -hmm. These stabilization forces, I mean, uh, I mean, will facilitate the re re peaceful repatriation process, and it has stemmed the further um, the future violence. This will serve the confidence building measures between the Rohingyas and other ethnic people, and at the same time, it helped uh, build peaceful coexistence between the disease. And at the same time, this stabilization force can also counteract radical threat that may themselves be present in the region. The other thing is concerned directly with the Rohingya people. We have the very bad experiences in 1978, 1991, the Fuji Because this year, this year, sometimes a forced repatriation was happening. So refugees should be were consulted directly, I mean the Rohingya people, to ensure Rohingya views shape the terms of all future repatriation efforts and meet the demands, our demand, for protected return to our place of origin, access to security, justice and livelihood, healthcare, education, social, I mean, welfare and the compensation. Mm -hmm. That's very important, I think. Okay, thank you very much. Yeah, that direct consultation is something that, uh, well, we're trying to get out in a number of different ways, but uh, certainly on the political solutions is absolutely necessary as well. Okay, I, I'd like to open the floor now for questions and comments from the audience, both in the room and online. I'm going to take two or three at a time, and if I could ask you to uh, give us your name and any institution, institutional affiliation you might have. Yeah, great. Uh, hi, my name is Craig Volters. I'm a research fellow in politics and governance at ODI. Um, thanks a lot for, to all the panel. That was really, really useful and interesting. The, a, lot, a lot of what I've heard talks about political will. It's in the, in the document here and a lot of what you've said. But can we, can we try and... Um, I'd, I'd like to hear the, from the panel, I suppose, is to unpack what that actually looks like. I think we're hearing a lot of solutions and what we'd like the end state to be which I think most people can agree on in the room. But how do we get there? Like, where is change actually most likely to come from? So if we're looking at Myanmar or Burma and saying, looking at the current government, are there reformers that can be worked with? Are there spaces where the international community can engage and make a difference on this? Because a lot of this is, feels like advocacy and that can, has a role and the international community has a role, but there's a lot of development actors in Myanmar and Burma there's a lot of different processes ongoing. So where can, like, where is change most likely to come from? What does political, what, what can we do to actually influence political will? Who are the people? Who are the, where are the spaces? Um, so that's, that's kind of to, to, the, to the whole panel, um, as much as you'd like to engage with that. Okay, thank you. Um, yes, I'm gonna take Margie and then. Thanks. Um, Margie Buchanan-Smith. I'm a senior research associate with ODI, but I carried out the real-time evaluation of the CWC, communicating with communities, sorry, the real-time evaluation of the coordination of the communicating with communities. Um, so, and particularly interested in what Caroline was, was saying, reflecting on the communication aspect. Um, I mean, one thing is more of a comment, and the second is a question. In terms of a comment, um, I think, as you say, said, Caroline, it was impressive how communications was seen as central to the response early on. But at the same time, it was rather disappointing to see how many months it took agencies to talk to each other, to share 
uh, feedback information, particularly from the information hubs. I mean, there was these three big models, UNHCR, IOM, and my mind's gone blank, UNICEF, with the three um, agencies running lots of those info hubs. And in April, which was eight months after the influx, that data wasn't being shared between the agencies. So I think there's some questions we need to ask ourselves as the within the humanitarian sector about why we're we're so slow to, to kind of share. But the second thing I wanted to mention, which is, well, it's a question really, on the communication side. So we can, it's really important that we're getting feedback on the humanitarian response, but how far should communications go in such a politicized crisis to actually be um, listening to people's voices about what they think the political solution should be, what they think about the protection issues. Um, so it's straying into that much more political domain. And, and how do we, how far do we go as humanitarian agencies in the kind of communications field? Thanks, Margie. Um, yes, you had a question. Thank you very much for giving me the floor. I'm Nasir Odir, I'm from Bangladesh. I'm here affiliated with the Refugee Studies Center at the University of Oxford, and also research consultant uh, with the Department of Anthropology and Sociology at SOAS. Uh, I have a, a couple of very small addition to the discussion. First of all, that when Mark was talking about that there is a kind of distinction between national politics and local politics, and the local political leaders were elected from BNP, I think that's not true because the last, uh, from 2008 and 2014, two parliament, two parliament elections at the time, Awamili government now in, in, in power, actually the local member of parliament was elected from Awamili. So it's, there's no political you know, distinctions between central and local uh, setup. But the point is, um, he was right in a sense that, yes, the local perspective, local political perspective towards the Rohingya refugees and the central you know, uh, state's uh, approach is quite different. Why different? Then uh, we'll talk a bit later. I, I just this one point. Another point is this. Nurul Islam was talking about um, that should be uh, recognized as refugees because of 1951 refugee conventions. Just to give uh, kind of corrections that Bangladesh is not is one of the signatory states of 1951 refugee conventions. So that's the one reason at the same time, now there's a biometric database made by the Bangladesh government. It's almost 1.1 million people recorded. And they are identified not as forcibly displaced Burma citizen. They are officially now designated as forcibly displaced Myanmar nationals. There's one. There's a couple of just addition, and to back to Caroline, the CHT language is very similar to Rohingya language. It's not true because Sudan Hill Tracks is a home to 11 ethnic minority groups. They are Chakma, Marma, Tripura. They have their every ethnic group. They have their own language, but Rohingya people speak in a particular language which is very similar to the Chittagongian language, the regional dialects. 
the dialects of Bengali language. But you are very much true that the new arrivals and the old Rohingya refugees and the local Chittagongers is quite different. Just to give you a footnote, I've been working on the Rohingya refugees for more than two decades. And I was born in Bajar, so I was brought up there. So I'm quite familiar with the dialects because I can speak Rohingya language better than the Rohingya do. So that's one. And you are very much right, there's a Kuri. 1 to 20, 20, 1 to 40 is a kuri. Every kuri, you understand what I mean. That's one uh, to add. And finally, to back to you, that when you were talking about ICC, International Criminal Code, you know, there's a, there's a kind of attempt initiated by the ICC and one of the uh, Bangladesh um, appointed prosecutor, Professor Payam Akavayan, recently gave a lecture at Oxford. I was there as a resource person. and. Myanmar is not actually the one of the state member states of ICC. So ICC doesn't have any jurisdiction <coughs> to do anything. Just even Bangladesh, even Bangladesh, if Bangladesh claimed that there's genocide, you know, taken place, but ICC cannot do. ICC only can do by its own initiatives on the ground of deportation. That's what the legal internationally ICC uh, in 1948 ICC you know uh, framework and Rome Statutes framework only Myanmar could be you know brought under justice and fine. I'm going to have to stop you there because otherwise we won't have time okay. for any answers or other questions. So I'm sorry about that. But let's um, let's move on and um, we'll okay. we'll have the panelists respond to some of Thank your you. comments. Thank you very much. Um, let's start with those. I mean, I think I should say that. I mean, this is uh, an event that is being held by the Humanitarian Practice Network, and we're really, you know, usually focused on humanitarian practice, and we've had quite a lot of that today. But because of the the specific context here, inevitably, the the politics are of an even higher profile than they are in most other uh, conflict situations or humanitarian emergencies. And I think um, uh, that's why we have this kind of mixture of, of topics, and you see that in the exchange. So I'm saying this uh, in, partly in response to, to Craig's question, because of course we're not specifically focusing um, in HPN on the politics, but you can't, you absolutely can't ignore them, and especially in this context because of the, uh, the situation. But let me, I want to go back to Mark now, who's, uh, who's, I hope is still online with us. Mark, do you have any, uh, I don't know if it's answers for Craig or responses to, to Craig's question about the political will and, and you know, what that looks like and how do we actually get there or achieve change? Well, I, I mean, I think that uh, it's important to recognize that humanitarian action always has to be politically informed, uh, even if we're, we're not necessarily political. Uh, and I think one of the key issues here is the, the, the seeming change that seems that has taken place in terms of the regional politics. Uh, uh, from what I understand, uh, uh, I felt that Bangladesh had hoped to have had more support from India in the past, which now seems to have moved over to uh, support of the Myanmar government. Uh, and, and also uh, there's concern about uh, China's role. So if you want to uh, address the issue of political will, it, it in part has to come from uh, the influence of the region uh, on, on all the parties uh, in, in, in involved. Uh, and in particular, I think India and China are important players in this, this area. The region, 
I think, is also taking uh, a stronger interest. And then the other issue of political will is the role that the Secretary General can play. Uh, I don't think this is an issue for the Security Council because it's not a threat to uh, to, to stability in the terms of the Security Council. But uh, the Secretary General's good offices, uh, I, I think, are important. Uh, and the role of the Special Envoy to Myanmar, uh, I think, can, can be highlighted. I mean, the Secretary General did visit and drew attention to the problem. But I think there needs to be far more active engagement uh, from the Secretary General's side to try and 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 ensure that there is an appropriate solution to the situation. Thank you, Mark. Um, I'm actually going to, uh, Jeff, I wonder if I could put you on the spot. And um, given the your article in the exchange, and you, you focused on the, the failures of, of the past in terms of sure. refugee response, what, have you got any uh, thoughts you can share with us? Um. I've got to confess, to begin with, that this article took me 25 years to write. Uh, and it, it originated from a meeting I attended at UNHCR headquarters in 1993 at the height of a, one of the uh, successive Rohingya refugee emergencies, uh, where a senior staff member concluded the meeting by saying, the Rohingya are primitive people. At the end of the day, they go where they're told to go. And what I suggest in the article is that attitude towards the Rohingyas very much informed the UN's approach to the refugee situation in the region over the years. And I look specifically at two specific um, repatriation operations in, in the late 70s and early 90s, both of which were, did not meet UNHCR's own standards for safety, dignity and voluntariness. And um, I look at the way in which UNHCR essentially either turned a blind eye to the forced repatriation of Rohingya refugees to Myanmar, or indeed in some senses colluded with those, with those episodes. And under your very careful editorial guidance, I've edited a, a final section to the paper, which is basically saying, could this happen again? We've seen forced repatriation to Myanmar on two occasions, and what are the prospects for this happening again? I, come to the, I sit on the fence a little bit on this issue. I come to the conclusion that there are some reasons why we might expect it wouldn't happen again. There's a lot more media publicity on this situation now than there was in the 1970s and 1990s. I think if there were abuses perpetrated on the refugees in order to force them to go home, this would be picked up internationally by the media much more than in the two previous occasions. Um, I also think, I've not been there recently, but from everything I've read and the surveys I've seen, the Rohingya themselves seem to be much more adamant about their rights, protecting their rights, and not going back until the time is right, um, making repatriation strictly conditional on a resolution of the citizenship and, and human rights issues, which, again, is perhaps um, a little bit different from the two previous episodes. At the same time, I suggest that there is some kind of cause for concern very quickly, what are the causes for concern? Well, firstly, there's clearly uh, an impetus both on the part of Bangladesh and on the part of donor states that they would like to see this situation resolved as quickly as possible by repatriation. So that's a little bit disturbing. You have the fact that UNHCR and UNDP have signed an MOU with the Myanmar government, which uh, hasn't been published, um, which has a secrecy clause in it. And to the best of my knowledge, no refugees were consulted in the, in the formulation of that MOU between the UN and the and the government. You have the fact that a lot of the discussion around return and reintegration now focuses very much on the socio-economic aspects. So for example, I think there was a press release from the Myanmar government yesterday about building shelters for returning refugees. And we all know that shelter is not the most important issue. It's citizenship and human rights are the real issues. And then um, 
I guess a final cause for concern is if you look at refugee policy globally, where it at is very much with the Global Compact on Refugees and the Comprehensive Refugee Response Framework is looking for longer-term developmental approaches which provide livelihoods to refugees but which also meet the needs of host communities. Uh, to the best of my knowledge, and I need to do a little bit more research on this, but to the best of my knowledge, UNHCR's efforts and the UN's efforts generally to convince the Bangladesh government to pursue this more developmental approach have been rebuffed so far because basically Bangladesh doesn't want to consider the long-term presence of the refugees. So it still leaves uh, a prospect that more and more pressure will be um, exerted on the refugees in order to get them to repatriate prematurely, which on the basis of the historical experience I look at in the article is how would the UN and UNHCR particularly respond if that situation arises for a third time. Thank you very much. Um, can I can I go back to Margie's question now and maybe refer that to Caroline? And I don't know, Ake, if you have anything you want to to say about this. Margie was talking about the you know there's still quite a, a long way yeah. to go in terms yeah. of. Mm -hmm. I mean, I really agree. It's been too slow, Margie. And I, I mean, I th I think while it was very interesting reading reading um, what you you and Marion have written about the picture in. April, and then looking at the um, evaluation of the common services, which I think the research was done in August, and seeing the movement that had been happened by then, it needed to have happened before April, and I think it goes back to a lot of the things that Mark was talking about at the beginning, and the lessons we've learnt over and over and over again and not applied, and and although when I visited last November there was a very good person in place leading the communication area. Then there was a gap. There was nobody, and and it didn't. It, the coordination didn't happen. And again, the funding was all short term, which meant that all the things that needed to be put in place were delayed. Your the sec. Can I go into the same part of my? I mean, I thought the second part of what you were saying about how far. How far is the purpose just to get information to? Um, the Rohingya and get feedback from them about what isn't working and how far is it to go beyond that to real communication. I think we have to be doing the real communication. And part of what we have to be doing is, it, is to put people in a position where they can make the right decisions. And some of the most fundamental decisions will be if there's ever a quest, when there's a question of return. The, for them to decide whether or not that's the right thing to do or to decide whether they try to become Bangladeshi or all these things. Now, that that's far, far more than the provision of information. It's, it's trying to provide safe spaces where people can talk, where they aren't pressured by a particular element in the community. It's all extremely complex, but absolutely within what I think we all have a responsibility to be doing. I've got copies of the What Matters Here, by the way, um, just various different ones. If anybody wants to grab these afterwards, um, in some of these, there is Rohingya are, people are already asking and raising questions about all these issues. It's not, um, it's not just we worry about food and all this follows later. They are thinking about every, all these matters. Mm. And I suppose, too, uh, you know, when you're talking about having access to 
the adequate information to enable you to make an informed yeah. decision, then that also can involve others like legal experts, um, a whole yeah. range of other actors. And so who, how do we put people in touch with those yeah. people? How do we facilitate the, that sort of engagement? Yeah. Um, thank you very much. I, I, I'm not going to be able to let every panelist answer every question because we'll run out of time, but I've got some questions from our online audience I'd like to, uh, to put to the panel. Um, the first one's from Tara uh, Gingerich from Oxfam, uh, and she says, Wendy, you mentioned that many local actors have felt sidelined in terms of participating in the response. Could your guests say more about the ways in which local actors, government and civil society, have been able to lead and participate in the response and the barriers that they've faced. I think I was also referring to, we have at least two or three articles in the exchange. One is written by um, someone from BRAC, another a researcher who's been working with a, a local Bangladeshi organization in Cox's Bazaar, who's been supporting the, the refugees there. Um, and, and also from ground, to, ground truth's perspective, you know, gathering uh, feedback from people. So I think if we were looking more at, at local organizations, also I see Carrie's in the audience here, and Carrie wrote a, a very interesting article based on some re research she's been doing looking at dignity and how the Rohingya refugees in Cox's Bazaar perceive dignity and whether, they're being, whether the response is a dignified one from their perspective. And so uh, this, wasn't, this was looking at uh, the whole range of local actors, but really focusing in more, I think, on local, uh, local NGOs. And Carrie, I wonder if you want to say a word about what your research revealed about what is the local. Um, well, to the point of how local actors are being sidelined, I think it's incredibly important. I think they very much are being sidelined. And in terms of things like the grand bargain, there is a lot that could be done to uh, make the response more local. So I will say that up front, first off. Um, from our own research, one of the things we are looking at is kind of testing the hypothesis of if a more locally led response would bring more dignity to the people, the affected population. And what we actually found is that that's not necessarily true for a couple of reasons. And for the Rohingya in particular, one is that they don't necessarily feel that the, the Bangla community is local for them. And so when we think about locally led responses and displacement, you're not necessarily talking about the affected community leading the response, you're talking about the host community leading a response. And what that means is that you really need to think quite carefully about if there are any tensions that exist between the host community and the affected population. Um, and this also held true in our second case study, which was in looking at uh, displaced Syrians in Lebanon and issues that arise between these two communities as well. Um, but then for two other reasons, uh, this wasn't necessarily important to the affected community. So whether this is important for capacity building and grand bargain is, is a totally separate issue. But what we were looking at with dignity is, is do people actually care? And um, for one, they could rarely tell us whether the people who were helping them were, were local or international, um, whether that was because they, they couldn't read or they just didn't care because what was important was that their needs were being met um, and that aid was being given to them uh, in an appropriate way. And, um, and the few times that they did t know the difference, um, it was hard for us to discern whether or not the difference was actually there because a lot of international organizations are hiring Bangla staff. And so 
you could go to an international distribution and, and it'd be given out by Bangla staff and that could in their minds be a local organization but actually be an international and so that line between international and local is quite fuzzy already um, and so what we were trying to do is really get the effective population's point of view and from their point of view I think localization isn't really on their their minds necessarily um, the things that they care about are that they're treated well um, that they're given respect that uh, that they get the aid that they need to survive and so that's kind of where what came from from our research thank you Carrie um, I don't know if anybody else wants to okay did you have anything you want to say on just to react on that. yes do Oh, sorry, yeah, you, my microphone. Yeah. Um, no, I, I think that is, uh, I just listening to you, I, I mean, you have to realize we do work um, as an international NGO with almost 3,000 uh, staff, uh, of which we have about 1,000 uh, Rohingya volunteers, as we refer to them, I think that's known, uh, as well as 2,000 Bangladeshi staff. And I think the engagement that way, uh, yes, there are international staff, obviously, as well. And, and at one point, we were over uh, almost 200, I think. We're reducing now uh, quite a lot. Um, but the engagement that way, I think, is massive. And I do think, um, especially with, with the outreach team in the camp, the feedback we do get from uh, the, the beneficiaries, which are also included host population, I think it's important that we look at the whole entire area because everybody is affected by what's happening. Um, and we try to keep that uh, as, a, as a topic all the time in, in, our com in our communication with our patients, with uh, the communities that we visit. Um, I, I think you, you do, I, I see it basically as one big group uh, as well to, to not try to distinguish too much at the current phase that we're in. Mm. And I understand from the from many of the authors of the articles of this edition that that local government um, is very much in a leadership role in many parts of the response. And then, of course, they're an integral part of the intersector coordination group as well. So on that front, um, there is, uh, you know, leadership being exercised. I think for local humanitarian organizations, local in the sense of Bangladeshi ones responding to the crisis in Cox's Bazaar, they found it very difficult to penetrate the international coordination structure initially. And because it was actually different from what we usually do in these situations, that made it even more complicated. And the usual problems of meetings being held in English and you know, not being clear, you know, hearing by word of mouth that you might want to come along to this meeting rather than there being anything very systematic about it. I'm sure that's improved over the course of time, but these were some of the things that were, were raised in, in the articles that we, we received. Um, I've got a question from Matthew Hunt, who's a student from the University of Southampton. And Matthew, again, this is uh, one for you probably, Ake, but others may want to comment. I'm interested to ask if there are any mental health support networks in place for the refugees alongside the vaccines and antibiotics that tackle physical health. What are the main barriers to providing this support? I mean, you did mention this, but uh, perhaps you can go into more detail. Um, well, within our, what I can talk for for MSF, we, within our clinics, we have mental health support, uh, anything from, from counseling to psychiatric support, um, including psychiatric me uh, medication. Um, we have focused obviously a lot on, uh, for example, patients that present uh, after sexual violence uh, and support the proper care uh, for mental health after that, uh, but also the general trauma. Um, what's happening in the camp and, and, and more widely, um, I don't know all the details at the moment. Um, so I, I couldn't comment on the, on the widely available and other NGOs. Maybe there are people here that, that are also providing mental health. Mm -hmm. um, but for MSF, yes, there is definitely services. And within our outreach, we focus a lot on that. 
to make it clear these are available. Because there, there's of course a lot of cultural differences uh, and people maybe not knowing what support they can look for within the health facilities that we have. So there's a lot of outreach going on to, to uh, explain uh, what services are available and what people can benefit from uh, mm, yeah, mm. Uh, yeah, and I feel I, I should say that the last edition of the Humanitarian Exchange was focused not on Bangladesh or mental health support there, but on mental health and psychosocial uh, support in humanitarian crises, which, uh, which some of you, and, and Matthew in particular, who's uh, put through this question, might be interested to look at. Um, thanks, Aki. I'm going to move on so that we can get a few more in before we finish time. Um, I've got a question from Mia Marzato from Translators Without Borders, uh, who Caroline was, was just talking about. And she says, as Caroline rightly pointed out, language barriers are an important constraint in the response. Language barriers are also faced by local responders as coordination meetings are held in English, as, as I just said, and meeting efforts and key documents, meeting, sorry, meeting reports, I need my glasses really, meeting reports and key documents are rarely translated into Bangla. How can global localization efforts help overcome these barriers at field level? Um, I, I feel tempted to go to Caroline <laughs> first since... Uh, <laughs> I, I agree. Um, I, I mean, I think... I think writing things in very clear English helps. If it, it's it's not off. Well, yes, some some of the responders will have no English at all, um, but some of them will have English and can read them if they are written simply. Um, we should, of course, we should all of us be providing the materials in Bangla as well. The the reality, the speed that people are working, is that I don't think that often happens. Um, and I think in meetings, it's even more difficult because ideally you would have all the cord all coordination meetings at least bilingually English and and Bangla. The reality, I don't know. I don't know if it's deliverable. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Anybody else like to comment on that? Nuhu? No. Nuhu, would you? No. We're talking about the uh, the language issues and uh, how can we, how can localization kind of support uh, making sure that people get the information and the services and the languages that they use. Uh, like this gentleman has said, narrated. Yes. The, the local people, the Rohingya language and the this uh, southern part of Chittagong, particularly Cox was area, they say no communication capacity. They say communicability. Although there's, uh, uh, Carolyn has mentioned that uh, those who are from Burma, uh, from Rohingya, they consider the mix of some the Burmese word in, mm. in on, 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 on Bangladesh side, so some Bangla word is a mix. But it's a still communicable one. I don't mm -hmm. think so much any problem with a communication between two people, in fact. Mm. So you think it's the the problem is is being overemphasized? No, that is. Uh, yeah, I think uh, for to to for communication between the Rohingya and the local people, I think I don't think there is a much problem. In mm, fact, yeah. Maybe though between the aid yeah. community and yeah, the yeah. and the yeah. Rohingya. Uh, but, but the for the aid group, those who are working in the aid camp, they should understand this. I mean the uh, actual the uh, feeling of the uh, refugee. This is a very important mm. thing. How they feel, how they perceived. 
Mm -hmm. Those who are working there, that's important. Yes. Uh, first of all, uh, suppose here is a dignity. Mm -hmm. What dignity means, actually? It is not that uh, you are feeding the Rohingya people in the refugee camps where the aid groups are given. Enough there. But it doesn't mean that this is a, the, uh, still the refugee feel that this is a, they don't want to lead a life of humiliation uh, as refugees and uh, beggars in the refugee camp. This is a, still this is a donor dignity. Mm. They don't feel it dignified. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I actually was going to call on the person behind you very quickly who hasn't spoken yet. And uh, because we're running out of time, so this will actually be the last um, either question or brief question or brief comment. Yeah, I just wanted to comment on the last one. I, uh, yeah, sorry. My name is Ronnie. I work with, with I'm a Rohingya and work with Mr. Nurul. Uh, so in terms of translation, I think if there is very crucial information is there, a visual representation through a video, it's, it's much more workable and functional than to translate it in any other languages. Because Bangla itself is very different from, from the Rohingya language itself. Uh, my other question, um, the, my question will be to, to, because it's a humanitarian meeting we are here, I wanted to know the level of international funding available for the Rohingyas and what is the next plan because if the funding reduces, then we will see new kind of uh, problems coming up in the coming years. Thank you. I don't know that anybody can, uh, can actually answer that question uh, overall, that any of us here are in a position to answer that, unless we have somebody in the audience who wants to attempt. But um, I, I think it's a good question, and it is something that people look, especially when we're looking at a longer-term response, which is, um, certainly going to be, be necessary as opposed to the more of the short-term approach that has been taken to date. Um, I'm afraid that we're just about out of time. Uh, I wanted to thank everyone for, for coming today. I think it's been a really interesting discussion. I hope you'll find interesting and enjoy reading this edition of The Exchange. Um, please do share it with others that you know who might be interested. We're always interested in feedback, too. Um, this event, uh, I should have said at the beginning, has been streamed live online. There's a video recording that will be on the ODI website, uh, I think, tomorrow or the following day, <laughs> within the next couple of days. And I hope that those of you in the room will join us outside for some refreshments and to continue the discussion and do some networking, since we are the Humanitarian Practice Network. And I'd like to extend a special thanks to our panel for, for coming today and making the time to, to be with us. And especially to Mark, who's, who's joined us on the, on the line from Vienna. Um, so thank you very much, Mark. Are Mark, thanks to you, Wendy. You're still there. OK. Thanks again. And uh, we look forward to seeing you at the next event soon. Thank you. Thank you for listening. For more ODI live event podcasts, find us on SoundCloud or subscribe to the Overseas Development Institute podcasts via iTunes.